sick of sorrow, sick of the pain, sick of hearing again and again that there's gonna be peace on earth. Warcast for Catholics. Welcome to another episode of this podcast sponsored by the Catholic Peace Fellowship. I'm Mike Griffin, your host, and you can learn more about us by visiting our website at catholicpeacefellowship.org. In today's episode, we're going to continue with some of our popular segments, such as In the Beginning with Mike Schorsch, looking at another facet of the first 500 years of church teaching and practice on war. We'll also hear the very final segment of our interview with Iraq War vet and conscientious objector Joshua Castile. But we're going to begin today with a new segment that you'll be hearing regularly. It is called The Bible and War, and it's hosted by Patrick McGowan, a Southside Irishman who is going to explore passages in Scripture which often are used to support war, but which may often be misread. Now everyone's familiar with how the Old Testament is often misused, and we will talk about that at a later point. Is it in fact true that the Old Testament simply offers a warrior God, or are there not deeper messages within it? But in fact, we're going to begin today with the New Testament, and with the first of seven passages that are often used to support war. But at closer look, perhaps these messages have been misread. And so we'll look at what these passages really say and how they ought to be read. Hello, I'm Patrick McGowan, and this is the first installment of The Bible and War. We will now look at the seven passages in the New Testament most often used to support war. The first comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10, verse 34, which reads as follows. Do not think that I have come to bring peace upon earth. I have come to bring not peace, but the sword. Two aspects need to be clarified in this passage. First, the proper understanding of peace. When Jesus says that he does not bring peace to the earth, to what is he referring? Jesus wants to make clear that peace cannot be interpreted as mere comfort quiet passivity, or naive calmness. If that is your understanding of peace, then Jesus does not bring it. Christian comprehension of peace necessarily includes struggle for justice, active opposition to evil forces, and creative solution of the conflicts we face. Only then, love and truth will meet. Justice and peace will kiss. In other words, peace is active nonviolence, which implies good doses of strength and courage. The second point has to do with the meaning of the sword. Jesus is not saying that he has come to bring actual, material, lethal weapons. If we turn to a parallel passage in the Gospel of Luke, we find Jesus saying, Do you think I have come to establish peace on earth? No, I tell you, but division. Here we find a similar puzzle. Is Jesus endorsing division instead of unity? Not at all. So then, how are we to understand Jesus as bringing not peace, but the sword and division? The answer is found in the letter to the Hebrews, where we read that the word of God is living and effective, sharper than any two-edged sword. And then the author goes on to say that it cuts deep, as joint and marrow, bringing judgment to all our inner thoughts and emotions. 
The sword, then, is the word of God, as is indicated elsewhere in Scripture. For example, in Isaiah 49, verse 2, Wisdom 18, verses 15 and 16, Ephesians 6, verse 17, and Revelation 1, verse 16 and 2, verse 12. Taken together, these passages indicate that this sword, this word of God, lays bare our souls, discerns the signs of the times, and identifies what runs contrary to the gospel. On this score, we should note that just before Matthew 10, verse 34, Jesus warns his disciples that they will face persecution, that they should be fearless in speech, and that their heavenly Father will protect them. And just after this passage, Jesus declares that anyone who loses his life for his sake will find it. The context shows us that everyone who hears the word of God has to make a decision to accept it or reject it. Thus, the sword is not the kind that is used in wars. It is not made of iron. It is made of something far more powerful, God's word. It creates a division between those who cleave to God's word and those who pass it up, those who stand for it and those who are against it. The question this passage puts to Christians is, have you been pierced by the sword of God's word? In our next segment on the Bible and war, we will take up the classic passage from Mark's gospel, namely, to render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's. Until then, I'm Patrick McGowan for the Catholic Peace Fellowship. You're listening to Warcast for Catholics. I'm Mike Griffin. And as you can see, we're right in the thick of all these issues now. We've just had our first installment of the Bible and War with Patrick McGowan. We're going to hear in a moment the final words of Joshua Castile, Iraq war vet and conscientious objector, and then learn about some of the early martyr saints in the Catholic tradition. This is what this podcast is intended to do, to put us right in the midst of all these great questions and how we can come to find answers through our faith and through our tradition. This is a time not to put our head in the sands and not simply to go along with the crowd, but to really take up these questions as Catholics and as Christians and say, what are we to think? What are we to do? And what are we to be? at this time of war? How can we be a sign of peace, of Christ's peace to the world? And so now, the final segment of our interview with Joshua Castile. And you know, Joshua, one of the things, this, I guess the last question is, a lot of people will ask, okay, well, if you've got a show as a soldier that in order to be a conscientious objector, that since you've enlisted, you've had a change of heart and cannot participate in killing. You cannot participate in war in any form. That raises the question about, you know, pacifism. And, um, and how, did you, how did you reconcile reconcile that saying like, well, maybe you would, you know, defend your mother or something, but that's different from what you have to prove to be a conscientious objector. Talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, the, the regulation which governs conscientious objection is very explicit about the fact that a person does not have to be a complete pacifist in order to be a conscientious objector. You have to be against the institution of war and um, common hypothetical situations like would you defend your mother or sister if she is getting raped? Um, you know, those kinds of questions you can answer yes to. You can answer yes to the possibility of violence in policing engagements as well. 
The issue is is war, and right. war is a political event. Right, and you have to stress when you'd answer those, you'd have to stress. Now, some people would be complete pacifists and and um, and be able to say no to those. But if you say yes, you'd have to stress yes. But those situations are not war, and Absolutely. the regulation is about war. Absolutely. Um, when you say that you are against war in all forms, that is a very political kind of killing. You're, what you're saying is is that I will not be a tool of of national violence. I will not be an instrument of national violence. I will not kill for a nation. I will not kill for a nation state. And that's very different than um, than a, a more general understanding of of self defense. Self defense. That's a great point. Now here's now this is so interesting. And hopefully any of you soldiers or anyone listening could um, give your comments. Log on to our website and react to this um, at CatholicPeaceFellowship.org because. What Joshua just said raises the question, it is a political statement, but you can't, you should not use the word politics or anything of that sort in your application. In other words, uh, what you object to is killing and war in, you know, in, uh, as an institution and participating in, in any act of war. However, you need to be clear if you want to get your CO uh, app application accepted, that you're not saying that it's this particular war or that particular war, because the minute they say you're being political, they'll reject your application. Right. So you have to be kind of careful mm -hmm. with that word. But uh, but again, what you're saying is that the question is, are you willing to kill and engage in war in behalf of this state? Absolutely. No, you can, you can always make reference to um, certain convictions which happen to be political, philosophical, or sociological, but you cannot base your right. application on any one of those three. It must be moral and religious. It has to be um, spiritual, moral, ethical. Right. And um, and so if you can if you can show that because of your convictions which um, which are spiritual, moral, and ethical, you have objections which are political, sociological, or philosophical, you're fine. Right, um, but they have to be based in something which like moves you at the core level. Right, and right. Um, it, it can't be subject to what's going on in politics now, and um, which is also interesting because a lot of times hypothetical questions will come up like, "Would you fight in World War II? Um Because a lot of people think that that is a, a good case of a just war, and um, and one thing that a CO applicant never has to do is answer a hypothetical. Right. Good point. You never have to answer a hypothetical question. You never have to have an answer to what would you do with a, with a six-shooter and Hitler in the room. Um, what you have to say is, is that I exist now. Right. Um, I can't tell you what I would do if I were somewhere else and in some other time. I live right now, and what I'm saying is, is that there is no situation in which me, who exists right now, will fight in any war. Right. Well said. Well said. We're about out of time, Joshua. Maybe you ought to give your email address if any soldier wants to contact you. Certainly they can email us um, through catholicpeacefellowship.org, but also you want to give yours? Uh, sure. My email address is joshua, J-O-S-H-U-A, at calebministries.net. That's C-A-L-E-B-M-I-N-I-S-T-R-I-E-S.net. Joshua at calebministries.net. Okay, thanks, Joshua, and uh, God bless in all your endeavors. Um, and uh, you're going to be fully received into the Catholic Church this Easter vigil, correct? Well, I've already made my profession of faith, and I've, um, I have been fully um, uh, brought into the church. Um, the, the full ceremony will take place uh, um, on March 5th for um, acceptance, and then I'll be confirmed at Easter. Excellent. We are very blessed to have Joshua as a, a member of our church. 
and uh, certainly wish him well. And you'll be hearing from him periodically on the Catholic Peace Fellowship podcast. So thanks again, Joshua. Thank you, Mike. Hi, this is In the Beginning, and I'm Mike Schorsch. Today, we're going to start a series of segments on the soldier martyrs of early Christianity, those saints who died for the faith while serving as soldiers in the Roman military. But instead of dying in battle, they died at the hands of their own commanders because of their radical obedience to Jesus Christ. It might seem unusual to us that Christians served at all in the Roman army. For one thing, Jesus' clear teachings against violence and idolatry would seem to prohibit his followers from being part of an organization that was dedicated not only to killing in battle, but also to performing pagan rituals. Furthermore, Christians were sometimes persecuted, and being in the army could make a Christian more publicly identifiable. Yet we have clear evidence that, at least by the end of the second century, there were indeed many Christians in the Roman military. One of the kinds of evidence we have for the presence of Christians in the Roman military is the Martyr Act. A Martyr Act, or Passion, is an account of the martyrdom of a particular saint. It usually includes a description of their apprehension, trial, and execution, all for the crime of professing allegiance to Jesus Christ and his kingdom above the demands of all earthly rulers. The martyr acts that deal with Christian soldiers are no different. The soldier martyrs portrayed in these acts were heroes because when their military duties came into conflict with the tenets of their faith, they were willing to suffer and die rather than compromise their religion. One such martyr was a soldier named Marinus. Eusebius of Caesarea, the famous ancient historian of the church, relates that in the early 260s, Marinus was stationed in Palestine as an infantry soldier. Marinus's commanders selected him for promotion to centurion. However, another soldier who was jealous of Marinus came forward and revealed that Marinus was a Christian. And because he was a Christian, he would not be able to offer pagan sacrifices, as all centurions were required to do. Marinus was brought before a Roman magistrate and accused of being a Christian. The magistrate asked him if the accusation was true. When Marinus said that it was, the magistrate called a recess to give Marinus time to reconsider. The choice was surely a difficult one. A few hours to decide to go against his faith or face execution. Marinus was quickly approached by the local bishop, who took him into the church and had him stand before the altar. With a copy of the Gospels lying on the altar, the bishop pulled back Marinus's cloak, revealing his sword. He asked him to choose one, the sword or the Gospel. Immediately, Marinus placed his right hand on the Gospel. The bishop told him that God would give him strength, and Marinus went back to face the magistrate. Back at court, Marinus confessed his allegiance to Jesus even more firmly, and subsequently the magistrate sentenced him to death. He was led off and beheaded. The martyrdom of Marinus can be quite challenging for us today. 
He had made a career of the military, yet when he was put to the test, he knew he could not obey orders that went against his faith. How do we respond when asked or ordered to do things that conflict with our beliefs? When we enter the sanctuary of our conscience, which do we choose, the gospel or the sword? We'll talk about more martyr acts from Christian soldiers in the next installment of In the Beginning. A couple final thoughts to close out the podcast. One deals with a question we often get at the Catholic Peace Fellowship, and that is, are you all a bunch of pacifists? Well, we really don't like that term, pacifist. It can be a secular term. Anybody can be a pacifist. You don't even have to believe in God. But here at CPF, we are faithful, believing Catholics who think that Jesus Christ reveals the way to live in the world and reveals the plan of the Father. And so for us, you say pacifism, but our preferred term is, in fact, Christianity. And this is how the early church, I, I often say the early church had, had another name for pacifism. It was called Christianity because at that time it was a little bit clear, although, as Mike Shores points out, there was complexity then as there is now. But there is this sense that the church is called to be the church in the world. And as, as members, we're called to be members. And that means doing certain things, caring for the poor, teaching, giving shelter to the homeless. And that means not doing other things, killing, hating our enemies. And so our role in the world is simply to follow Christ, simply to follow Christ. And that's not a form of putting, throwing our hands in the air, saying it doesn't matter. But if we can be a witness to another way, a better way, a way based on Christ, then that's perhaps the greatest gift we can give to our world, rather than trying to be just another little head of state. And so we at CPF try to follow Jesus, who taught, put simply, a non-violent way of love of friends and enemies. That's what our friend Father Charlie McCarthy always hits home and stresses on. Jesus taught a non-violent way of love of friends and enemies, period. You can't find any other traction in the gospel to base violence. And that raises the second and final point for this edition of Warcast for Catholics. Does this imply a certain judgmentalism on our part, judgmentalism on soldiers or judgmentalism on those who disagree? No, we recognize that we live in a big church and we're all in the same boat. And so we welcome diverse points of view. And to soldiers, we say that we respect, as Gandhi often did, the discipline, the hard work, and the courage that it takes to be a soldier. Would that all of us in the peace movement were willing to die for our beliefs, just as soldiers are willing to put their lives on the line. And so what we try and do here is a difficult task, to take a very clear position, a position that is fully upheld as, as an Orthodox Catholic position, but also to be in dialogue with those who don't hold that position, to respect them and to engage them in a conversation so that in any dialogue, it's not one against the other, but it's two people searching for what they are both in need of, and that is the truth, the truth of Christ who offers us the way forward and the way to life. So that's a final word. I'm Mike Griffin, and that's this edition of Warcast for Catholics.